two weeks down and a bunch to go. So, um, assignments, we do have a homework assignment that's due today. Uh, a number of you have already given it to me. I know three or four have submitted it on D2L, which is great. Um, you can also give it to me after class today. You have until 6 o'clock tomorrow morning if you're going to be submitting it on D2L. So if you're going to be waiting to the last minute, just don't wait because I do tag it as late at 6.01. It would be tagged as late. So, yeah, I'm that mean on it. So <laughs> you've had it for two weeks almost. Come on. But so make sure you get it in, get it in by 6. So don't, have, you know, don't wait until 5.45 and then your internet goes out and you can't submit it and, you know, running around trying to find some place, some another Wi-Fi you can connect to. So, but if you do, if you don't get it done after, do submit it anyway because at least you get, you only lose 25%. Don't just say, oh, I missed it, forget it all. You know, you may as well turn it in. You have the next week to turn it in a 25% deduction. So, 75% of the credit's a lot better than a zero when it comes to the final grade. Uh, quiz one is actually up and available now, so you can take that anytime if you want. We'll be through, we should be through chapter one today, so you'll have all of the information you need. Um, uh, it's 12 questions on those two chapters, six questions from each chapter, and you have, I believe it's 15 minutes on it. So it's t it is timed, uh, so make sure you have your notes. If you use the summary notes that I give you, have those ready with you to review. You're not gonna, don't take 10 minutes looking up the first question because then you're really going to be rushed on the, on the rest of them. It's due September 4th, next Wednesday. I'll remind you of it again. So if you don't want to take or don't want to deal with it over the holiday weekend, I'll remind you on Wednesday. It's available until Thursday morning at 6. Normally it'll only go through Tuesday morning, but that gives me a last chance to remind you on, on Wednesday since we're not here on Monday. First solar observations also due on Wednesday. And again, at least one observation is what I'm looking for at that point. And I'll, you don't you do any calculations, just those first five columns in the table is all that I need. And I'll take a look at them and give them back to you that uh, week from today. Exam one, coming up quickly here, chapter zero, one, and two will be on Monday the 9th. And then homework two, as homework one is due, I have the next one for you. And that will be due on the 13th. So. As long as we keep on schedule, it'll keep about every two weeks. You have a homework for about every two weeks. I try to give it to you in advance, so if you want to work on it in advance, you can. If you want to sit there and hold it until the 13th at 2 in the morning and start on it, of course, you always have that, you always have that choice. Here you go. So I'll give you a copy here. There's also, if you lose it, there's also a copy up on D2L under Lesson 3 for you. Go, sir. I did enough. One, two, three, I believe. And one, two, three. Thank you. You're welcome. There you go. All right. So, homework two will cover the next two chapters. So, this will cover chapters two and three. So, one thing I would recommend is at least the first five questions on here should be. I would recommend looking at before the assignment is due because that's material that'll come up on chapter in the exam one. So you can do it after and then you can be looking at those, you know, take the exam on Monday. The homework still isn't due till Friday because it has the rest of the chapters on it. So you don't want to be kicking yourself saying, I wish I'd done that question because it was something that was covered on the exam. So you might want to look at at least one through five before the first exam on a uh, week from Monday. And then here, let me give you one. Here you go. And Got a homework here. Let me get you that. Okay, there you go. Okay, so any questions on what's coming up? I think I got everybody there. No, no, no. All right, picture of the day for today then. Uh, Sagittarius triplet. Uh, Sagittarius is one of the zodiacal constellations. And it actually happens to be the constellation, meaning the part of the sky where the center of our galaxy is located. Now our galaxy is a flattened disk so it's got a big bulge at the center and then the spiral arms that come out. So we're looking somewhere at the edge like this. It's a little bit like Saturn, right? The rings. Uh, big bulge at the center. Big black hole at the, cent at the center of that. We'll come back and talk about all that a lot later. But what we have here is our sun somewhere out in this. And when we're looking in the direction of Sagittarius, we're looking towards the center of our galaxy. That means we're looking through all of these stars in the galaxy and all the nebulae. So we see a lot of stars there. So you see 
that how dense that star field is. There's a lot of stars located there. So that's because of where we're looking. If we were to be looking in this direction, looking out of the galaxy, looking up here, there'd still be stars there. There'd still be a lot of stars there, but nowhere near as many as when we look in the disk of our galaxy. So when we look in this direction, we see a lot of stars. We see a lot of nebulae. Nebulae are gaseous areas. So it's really clouds of gas out in space. And again, we kind of mentioned some of this before, but that those clouds of space, those clouds of gas are a better vacuum than we produce here on Earth. You've got a few particles every uh, couple, you know, cubic centimeters. You know, have cubic meters have you know particles that you could count the number of them. Not you know as you could here on Earth, you couldn't begin to count how many particles there are in a little tiny cubic centimeter. So very uh, very low density, very little material there, but they glow because they're so large. We're talking. I believe this larger one here on the bottom here was about 100 light years across. So not a lot of material in each, each cubic meter, but a heck of a lot of cubic meters in 100 light years. Right? A lot in something that's 100 light years across, you're going to have a lot of space. So there's going to be a lot of particles there. And they will glow when they are, when they are excited. And what happens is that there's very young stars that are forming. These gas clouds have collapsed. They formed very young stars. And those stars then serve to now excite the gas that's left over around them. So the first stars that formed caused the, caused the nebula to, gl to glow. And it glows red is telling us what it's made up of. The red glow is the red glow of the hydrogen atoms. Hydrogen, the most common element in the universe, certainly makes up 90% of all the atoms in the universe. And we're going, to see, we're going to see a lot of it in anything we look at, whether it's a star or a galaxy or anything else or a nebula, we're going to see a lot of hydrogen. So the red glow around is telling us that there's a lot of hydrogen there. The blue, that's a good one. The nebula off to the upper right has red glow towards the center and has a bluer glow around outside. That's telling us that there's a lot of dust there. There's a dust, dust meaning particles that are bigger than just a single atoms or molecules. So bigger clumps of material. But still very tiny for anything we'd see here on Earth. Dust is very good at reflecting blue light. So this very young star towards the center is sending out a lot of blue light. It's a very hot star. that emits a lot of blue light, a lot of ultraviolet light. And that light is very good at being, dust is very good at reflecting that blue light. So we see all the dust, just the light from that star being reflected from that dust. So if we were to look at this nebula, the blue one on the outside actually has exactly the same uh, properties as the star that's emitting the light. So it's just really reflecting the light of the star. Blue light is much more easily reflected and that's why it gives it the bluish color. So we'll see a bluish color there, a red color, and the other type of nebula that you see a little bit here, very diff, kind of difficult to see, but you might notice that there's that this red isn't smooth, for example, that there's some dark lines going through it. Those are actually dark nebulae. A dark nebula is really a denser area. So when we see the dark areas in a nebula, it's not that there's nothing there, it's that there's actually more material there than there is elsewhere around. And in fact, it's dense enough that it blocks out all of the light from behind it, from behind it. Not enough material there. That's probably where the newest stars, the youngest stars, are still in the process of forming. And once we get into talking about stars and the formation of stars, we'll go over things like these nebulae in a lot more detail. Is the third nebula in the upper left? Or? The third is the upper left. They're almost, these two are kind of connected. There's a little dust lane in here that kind of divides them. So there's one bigger one here. That's the Lagoon Nebula. There's a smaller one up here, and then the Triffid Nebula is over to this side. Again, the specific names aren't, aren't important, just happens to be what people have, have called them. But yeah, that third one is just kind of off to the side. You see a little bit of mostly red, and you do see a little bit of the blue reflection up on the very top edge, edge of that one as well. So, question? Yes, sir? If we were in a nebula, like right now, mm -hmm. would we know we were? Would we know we were? 
Not very easily if you were inside that. There's not that much material. My thought would be you really, really wouldn't notice it. Well, I, I mean, even when you, um, yeah. No, I'm going to say even the difference if you're flying an airplane, you fly through a cloud. You can tell, but it's not the same as you think it might be, you know, looking from the ground. And here, these are even much, much less dense than that. Well, because I hear complaints about people trying to use telescopes and not being able to see deep into space because mm -hmm. of all the stuff that's out there, uh, all the dust and everything. So could that mean we're actually in one or we not? That could be. Within our galaxy, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dusty material, meaning that when we actually look out here, we look out from here, you know, we really can see about like that maybe. We can't see this. We can't see the center of our galaxy. If you go out in the evening right now and look to the south, if you're north of Harrisburg, you're really out of luck because you're looking down to the Harrisburg city lights. But if you're, looking, if you're someplace else and you've got a relatively clear view, you're looking towards the center of our galaxy. It's about due south right now, you know, early, early evening after, you know, early, early mid-evening after sunset. It doesn't stand out. Right? You don't see this gigantic glow of the billions of stars that are there because of all the dust in between us has absorbed all of that light and we can't see it. You point a radio telescope there, it's the brightest radio source in the sky. Radio waves can make it through the dust, right? Just as radio waves can get through the walls of a building and anything else, they don't need a clear window as visible light does. So a little bit different like that, but yeah, there is a lot here. There is a lot of stuff that you cannot see. If, it, if something happens to be over here on the other side of our galaxy, and you want to point a telescope and try to see it, you're not going to see anything. It doesn't matter whether you're using a little telescope like the one I brought in last time, or you've got you know, an astronomer's 12-meter telescope with the mirror bigger than this room. You're not going to see anything because there's just so much dust between us and that that we're never going to see it. Now when you're looking this way, much easier. Then you can really see out, and that's when you get some of the, uh, the deep field views where you can really look out to the beginnings of the universe. Questions? More questions? Nope, nope. All right. Well, we'll go back and let's finish up chapter one then. And hopefully get a start on chapter two, if it goes well. We were working on, and I'm just going to review these uh, quickly here, go over Newton's laws again. Erase my little galaxy. Newton's laws, we'd gone over last time. We had three Newton's three laws. Let me put this up full. Put it up full screen here. But Newton's laws, first law, one said that an object at rest remains at rest. And an object in uniform motion in a straight line is going to keep doing that. It's not, neither of those are going to change their motion unless an external force acts on it. So if something is sitting at rest, it's just going to stay there. It's not going to go anyplace until some external force acts on it. If I take a ball and roll it across the table, it's going to keep going in that same straight line until something happens. It might roll off the table. All of a sudden, it loses a force. It loses the force of the table pushing up on it, and gravity can pull it down. That will change it away from a straight line motion. If I pu somebody pushes it, something else. You need something to change the direction of that motion. Now, you're used to this. You know, this happens all the time to you, right? You're driving down the street. You slam on the brakes. What happens to you? You, go, you shift forward, right? That's because you're following Newton's first law. Right? You were moving in a straight line at you know, 30, 40, 50, whatever, wherever you're driving, how many miles an hour. All of a sudden, the car stops. Well, you're still, you were moving at that speed. You still want to keep going forward. And you'll do so until some external force acts on you. Seat belt, steering wheel, airbag, you know, windshield, depending on what happens. Something, some external force will finally stop you. But something that you're familiar with every day, right? You slam on the brakes, you jerk forward. And that's because you still want to keep moving in a straight line at a constant speed. When you hit the gas, you get jerked back, right? You weren't moving. You wanted to stay still. The car starts moving. So you get jerked backwards. 
until you get up to speed, until that force has acted on you, then that has changed it. Then you've accelerated up to the proper speed and then you'll stay going at that constant speed. So that was Newton's first law. I'm not going to rewrite the whole thing out here. You've got it up there. I gave it to you last time. But really, an object at rest or in a straight line at a constant speed well, is going to keep doing that. It also means that if we see an object that's not at rest or not moving in a straight line at constant speed, there must be a force acting on it. So when we see the planets, they're not moving in a straight line at a constant speed, right? They're moving in ellipt elliptical orbits. They're moving in a curved orbit. That means there must be some force, and that's the force of gravity that we're going to come to in a couple of minutes here. Even if it was perfectly circular, there still has to be a force because the planet here wants to move in a straight line. Not a curved line, not a circle, not an ellipse, not any other orbit, not a parabola, hyperbola, nothing else. It always wants to move in a straight line. So if it has that, if, there, if it's not, if it's orbiting and orbiting around in a circle or an ellipse or whatever, there has to be some force acting on it all the time continuously to change that orbit. If you got rid of a force, it's just going to go in a straight line from wherever it was at that point. Okay. Now the second law, how did I give it here, said that the acceleration written out in words up above, written as an equation below, so I'm going to do the shorter one up on the board. Um, acceleration depends on the force that you apply and it depends on the mass of the object you're trying to accelerate. So I gave you an example of this before, that if you push on something, push on the little, my little case here, and I push it with some force, it'll move. If I push it with a harder force, twice as much force, it's going to accelerate twice as much. So the higher the force, the harder with which you push something, the faster it's going to accelerate. It makes perfect sense to us, hopefully. The other thing that the amount of the acceleration depends on is the mass of the object. So if you push on something with the same force, if I shove on something, shove on what did I do, the cat or the dog and the elephant, right? So you shove on the cat, it's going to move, right? It's going to be, I'm going to be able to push it. I can push just as hard on the elephant, nothing's going to happen. It's going to move, or it's going to, or it's going to move significantly less. So the amount of the acceleration also depends on the mass of the object. We're going to see that again in a few minutes because of the combination of the third law and what we actually see with the planets. That means that when we talk about gravity, everything pulls on everything else. So the Earth pulls on the Moon, the Moon pulls on the Earth. The pulls, the amount of the force is exactly the same. The result is quite different. Okay? The Earth pulls on the Moon with some force. The Moon pulls on the Earth with exactly the opposite force. Right? Newton's third law, equal and opposite. So why does the moon move around the earth and not the earth move around the moon? Well, got to go back to Newton's second law. The amount of the acceleration, the force is exactly the same. There's no difference with how much we pull on the moon compared to how much it pulls on us. That's exactly the same. But the mass of the earth is a lot bigger than the mass of the moon. So the Earth does not move near as much. It does move. Right? Or Earth is moving. The Earth and Moon are actually orbiting around a common center. That common center is way down deep inside the Earth. But they actually are orbiting around each other. When we look at other stars, we'll actually see cases where you can really see both stars moving at the same, at the same time. And the last one was just the equal and opposite, that if object A exerts a force on B, kind of going over that with the Moon, um, object B exerts an equal and opposite force on A. So that forces always come in pairs. That's why you're sitting in the chair. You put a, put a force down on the chair, it, sits back, it pushes back up at you. If it pushes up with too much force, you fly off into the air. Not going to see that happen, right? You push down with too much force that the chair can't uh, structurally hold, you're sitting on the floor all of a sudden. Right? You put too much force. If everything is balanced, you'll always be equal, putting the, equal, the same amount of force uh, for each object. I push on the wall, it better push right back at me with the same amount of force, otherwise I'm in the next classroom. You know, if I'm that strong that I can push the wall down, right, then I'm in the next classroom. 
but it's got to be pushing back at me. Otherwise, there's a force. There's a net force pushing it that way, and it's going to accelerate. So if it's not balancing that force, then that would cause an immediate acceleration and you know, tumble down the wall, and then you know, maintenance gets all upset, and they've got to rebuild the, rebuild the building because I was too strong and tore down, tore down their wall. Yeah, right. Okay, so those are new. Just, we went over those a lot last time, so I just wanted to kind of review them again uh, at the beginning here. Now, the fourth law that we're going to go over of Newton's talks about gravity. It's not, these are Newton's three laws of motion. This is the Newton's law of gravity is separate from those. Separate from these. So it's not law four, it's actually a completely separate, completely separate law. But what we're looking at here is that we see when we're on the Earth's surface, the acceleration due to gravity is really the same everywhere. No matter where you go on the Earth's surface, it's a little bit different. If you go up on the top of a mountain, it's a little bit less. Not a whole lot, but it is a little tiny bit less measurably uh, to modern equipment. But not a whole lot less. It's essentially the same. It doesn't really matter where you go. And it's always directed towards the center of the Earth. That's why we can stand here at a, what are we, at about a 50 degree angle. You know, we're all standing like this right now, well, way off like that. Right? We're, where's the Earth? We're over, oh, what about here someplace? You know, so little, little stick figures. So you're standing off there at some odd angle. Because to us, down is the direction of the center of the Earth. It doesn't matter where you are on the Earth. Gravity is always pulling you straight down. So you don't have to be at the North Pole, would be you know, the place we'd be standing straight up and down. And yes, if you're standing south of the equator, you know, you're standing upside down. Right? But your definition of down is still the way gravity is always pulling you towards the center of the Earth. So you're not going to fall off down here because gravity is always pulling you inward. So it's the same. It doesn't matter where you go on the surface of the Earth. As I said, yes, if you go to a uh, high mountain or anything, it'll be a little bit higher. If you go deep down, it'll be a little bit lower. To the lower levels of the Earth, it's actually a little bit higher, but pretty much it's ex the same regardless of where you are on the Earth. And it's always directed towards the center. It doesn't matter where you are. So no one's going to ever fall off the other side of the Earth because gravity is always pulling them in the same direction, not down from our point of view, but down from their point of view towards the center of the Earth. Now Newton then formalizes this into his law of gravitation which is, uh, given here we have two objects pulling on each other. Doesn't matter what they are, just any two objects. And there's going to be a force between them. And Newton's, is, Newton's law is written in words on the one side. Uh, the equation is up there. I'm going to give you the equation up on the board. But there is a force of gravity between every two objects in the universe that depends on G is a gravitational constant, just some number. There is a mass of the first object, whatever mass it has, say the Earth, mass of the Earth. Mass of the second object, mass of the Moon, mass of you, you know, force between you and the surface of the center of the Earth. And it also depends on the distance squared. How far apart are these two objects? In the case of the Earth and the Moon, how far is the center of the Earth from the center of the Moon? In the case of you from the Earth, it's how far are you from the center of the Earth. Not how far are you from the Earth you know, to the ground. How far are you from the center of the Earth? Gravity always works as though all the matter is concentrated at the center. So it doesn't really matter that this whole great big Earth here in terms of gravity, it really depends only on the amount of matter and as though it's all concentrated at the center of the Earth. A little bit more complicated that when you're real close to the object, but we don't need to get into that much more, that much more detail. So really, to determine the gravitational force between any two objects, that tells you what it is, how much, what the gravitational constant is, just some number you can look up, the masses of the two objects, and the distance between them. And that comes back to what I mentioned with the Earth and the Moon. This is a constant. The distance between the Earth and the Moon, doesn't matter whether I'm talking about the Earth pulling on the Moon or the Moon pulling on the Earth, the distance is the same. 
And the masses are just the mass of the Earth and the mass of the Moon. If you want to look at it the other way, it's the mass of the Moon and the mass of the Earth. The two forces are exactly the same. So every object pulls on every other object. You pull on the Earth just as hard as it pulls on you. It just doesn't move as much. Right? It's got a little bit more mass than you do. So it's not going to move near as much as you do. But the force is identical. The force is exactly the same for any two objects pulling on each other. The force of one pulling on two is the same as the force of two pulling on one. The little graph here is just showing how that force changes as you get further and further away. So if you're one unit away, whatever you want to define that to be, and you move twice as far away, so if you move the moon from where it is to two distances, two Earth-Moon distances away, the gravitational force has declined, not by half, but because it's the distances squared, it actually goes down one quarter. So you move something twice as far away, all of a sudden that force has gone down four times. It's four times less than it was. Move it three times away, it's one-ninth what it was. Four times, one-sixteenth. Five times, one-twenty-fifth. Ten times, one-one-hundredth. Means if you put the Earth out at Saturn, the distance of Saturn, Saturn is about 10 astronomical units or 10 times the Earth's distance away, it would be about 1 100th as strong. The gravity about 1 100th as strong at that distance. So the gravitational drop force drops off really, really quick. It never becomes zero. The Earth is pulling on every distant galaxy and quasar in the universe, it's minuscule but it's something you could calculate. You figure out, get the mass, know the mass of the two, and you know the distance, you can tell me how much that force is. You're pulling on every single one. Is that going to cause them to move? No. The force is so much smaller and would be overwhelmed by other forces of objects closer to them, but the gravitational force is never zero, no matter how far away you get. You'd have to get infinitely far away. So. The gravitational force will never ever become zero. There's no way you can have a gravitational force of zero because this would have, this can, this would have to be infinite or the mass would have to be zero. So if you have an object with zero mass, then technically you could have no gravitational force. Any object with mass is going to have a gravitational force. All right, so here I started drawing this on the board a little bit up here. This shows it a little bit better. That's what's happening with the planet, the Earth here, and the Sun. It goes back to looking at Newton's laws. It is that gravitational force, that is the external force pulling on the planet. The planet is here, we're moving with some speed through, through space right now, and we want to keep doing that. We want to follow Newton's first law and keep moving in a straight line at whatever that speed is. But there is an external force. That great big sun out there is pulling on us. So it exerts a force pulling us this direction. Fortunately, we are moving, right? If we were just standing still, what would happen? Plummet into the sun and we'd be gone. But we are moving, so what it serves to do is keep us in an orbit. We're moving this way. In that time that we've moved here, the sun has pulled on us. And now instead of being here where we wanted to be, the sun has pulled us a little bit in. Essentially what's happening is that we are constantly falling around the sun. Satellite in orbit is constantly falling around the earth. So instead of falling to earth, it's falling around the earth. It is falling, but it's moving at the same time and that keeps it in an orbit around the sun. So it's the gravitational pull of the sun is what is doing this. That is what's keeping the earth from moving in a straight line, doing what it wants to do. If you could eliminate the sun, just turn off its gravity all of a sudden, and the Earth were right here moving like this, it would just keep doing that. It would go in that straight line until it came close to something else. Yes, sir? So, uh, how does it like, exert the gravity like, for like, Jupiter and Saturn? Is it like bigger planets? The gravitational force, you could do the same equation. The gravitational force would depend on the mass of the two and the distance. It's actually going to be less of a gravitational force. So they don't need as much gravity? They don't need as much. Main, their mass would be bigger, that would make it a bigger gravitational force, but their distance is so much further away that even though they're many times more massive than the Earth, the distance is going to overwhelm that and you'll actually get less force. You can actually get less force between them. Question? Yeah? yeah I, I, I heard somewhere that the moon is, is actually slowly going away from the Earth. Is that true or not? Or is that false? 
Yeah, the moon is slowly, yes, it's slowly receding from the Earth. What is because it, of it. Like the, the sun will turn into a red giant long before the, uh, the moon flies away from the Earth? Oh, yeah, it, it won't actually fly. It would, fly it's, it would actually eventually reach another stable orbit, but it will take it billions of years. It'll get into an orbit eventually, and probably when I talked about, if I talk about tides later on, I'll talk about it. Um, it'll eventually reach a point where the moon will end up being in what we call a geosynchronous orbit. Now, geosynchronous satellites are the ones like you use for satellite dish, dishes. You point them at one spot and they just sit there. They're always pointing at that satellite because it's in the same spot. The moon would eventually do that. It's slowly getting into that kind of orbit. Will we see it next year? Will we see it in a thousand years? Will we see it in a million? No. It's a very slow process of doing that. Of doing that. The moon is actually slowing down the Earth's rotation too. It's actually succeeding to slow down the Earth. So instead of rotating at 24 hours, eventually, again, not next year, not in our, not in our lifetimes, not in 100 lifetimes, it'll be 25 hours, 26 hours, 27 hours. So the Earth's day is slowly getting longer because of the moon as, as well. But that's the tidal effects. That's a little bit more detailed than, than what I want to go into here. But. Uh, yes, there are around, well, around Pluto. Pluto and its moons are actually all locked together. And that means that if you're on the right place, you get to see the moon. And if you're in the wrong spot, you'd never know the moon was there. Okay, so at some point when the moon becomes in a geosynchronous orbit, if something is a ge in a geosynchronous orbit for us here, and you point that satellite dish at it, that's great. But if you're in China, other side of the Earth, you're never going to see it. It never rises or sets from where you are there. The same with the moon of Pluto, Charon, its large moon. Never ever see it rise or set. If you're, if you're there, it's going to be there. If you're not, it's not. If you go to the moon, look at the Earth. If you're on the near side of the moon, you always see the Earth. It's always up. Phase will change, depending on how much of it is illuminated, but you're always going to see the, see the Earth. If you're on the other side of the moon, you never see the Earth. It's never going to be visible from where you are. That side of the moon never points towards the Earth. Oops. Yeah, go ahead. I heard that the Earth has three natural satellites instead of just the moon. Three natural satellites. It could be. I'm not. I'm not aware of others, but okay. it, it certainly could be. I'm not. I'm not aware of any other anything that anything large, but. I mean, there could be other small little rocks that have been captured into orbits or something that are captured in uh, stable points between the Earth and the Moon. There could be things like that, but not, certainly nothing large that we'd consider like our own big moon. But I'd have, to, I'd have to look into it a little bit more. I couldn't tell you that one off the top of my head. Is there anything else? All right. Yeah, question. Yes, ma'am. You were saying that if the gravity was turned off, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Like, Until some other force acted on it. And then it so the odds of anything actually in the solar in the universe, anything else ever happening to it, are minuscule. Because. But if you happen to be on a direct collision course with Mars, you know, just say they happen to cross. The odds of that are, you know, beyond billions and billions and billions to one. But you would, you know, that would that would be the only thing that would stop it was hitting something else, passing close to some other source of gravity. Again, solar system, the uh, solar system, the solar neighborhood in the galaxy is pretty empty. So the odds of it happening are small. Right. Odds of turning off the gravity of the sun are even smaller. But you know, we can think about it at least. All right. Okay. Yeah. If you if it were traveling out, you mean if it if the sun's It could. If we had to get it there and you got it in the right conditions, it would be very difficult, but you could do it. I mean, if you had everything planned just right, you could certainly put the Earth into orbit around Jupiter. How you're going to move Ju Earth there and how you're going to get it moving exactly right, that would be the difficult part. Yeah, it would certainly be possible. To, I mean, we can, put another, we can put a little satellite in orbit around Jupiter. If we could move the Earth, you know, if we could put big rockets on the Earth that were able to, capable of moving it, there certainly would be no reason you couldn't get it into an orbit around Jupiter. The difficulty would be the technology isn't close to being there. Yeah? Uh, what do they uh, classify Pluto as again? Pluto is called a dwarf planet. Dwarf planet. All right. So what we were looking at here was I mentioned that the Earth orbits around, the, the Moon orbits around the Earth. 
but really the Earth and the Moon orbit around a common center of mass. And that's what we're trying to show in this picture is what we mean by a center of mass. And if you have two people of about the same mass and you put them on a seesaw and they stay about the same distance away from the center, they'll balance. If you put two people on one side of about equal mass, the same as this, so you have twice as much matter here, twice as much weight on this side as you do on this side, then these two have to be a lot closer to that center point and everything balances again. Orbits work the same way. When you have, if you're looking at the Sun and the Earth, you've got, you know, one little Earth out here and you've got billions of people sitting here, sitting almost on the very center to balance it. Because you've got billions of times the mass in the Sun as you do in the Earth. But when we look at other objects, it's not necessarily quite so distinct. When we look at other star systems, you can have stars that have almost the same mass orbiting around each other. And instead of seeing, you know, moon orbiting around the Earth like this, you might see, you know, stars orbiting around each other. So you see one star orbiting this way, one star orbiting that way around, and they're actually both moving. They're moving around some common, what we call the center of mass. The center of mass will always be closer to the more massive object. So if you had one of these stars were twice as massive as the other, its circle would be a lot smaller, be half the size. This one would be a lot bigger. Ten times the size, well this would be ten times smaller than this one. So the orbits would change depending on the amount of mass, but everything is always orbiting around each other. So the moon and the earth are orbiting around some common center, and if I put a little earth in there not to scale, you know, there's the center of the earth, and somewhere out there a little bit is really where everything's orbiting around. So the earth is actually making some little orbit down there. So the Earth is actually orbiting around that central point too, just like the Moon is. It's just so many times more massive that the orbit is much smaller and it's actually within the Earth. The Sun does the same thing. The Sun is orbiting around some common center of it and all the planets that's still located way deep down inside the Sun. So that's the idea of what we mean by center of mass, that it's going to be different for each, of the, each object. But that center of mass is always there. If you, um, st- if I stand up on the desk and jump off, in addition to probably breaking my leg, so I won't do it, um, I'm accelerating down towards the Earth. The Earth is accelerating up towards me at the same time. My mass, a lot less than the mass of the Earth. So its acceleration is you know, minuscule compared to mine, and mine is the motion that you see. If I were jumping towards an Earth that were my mass, then we'd both, you know, I'd be jumping down, it would be jumping up, and we'd meet in the middle. So the Earth is moving upward. So if you jump, jump on a table, jump offward, the Earth is moving up to meet you. Because of the mass difference, it moves, you know, a billionth of a billionth of a millimeter, if even that much, and you move the whole rest of the distance. But that's the whole idea of center of mass is that every, and, and Newton's laws is that everything is in motion, not just one object around another. Now this next one shows you a little bit, I gave you a couple of these, but really show some of those examples that we were giving, giving here. If we have two stars that have the same mass that are orbiting around each other, you'd have one orbit here, you'd have another orbit here, there's their common center of mass, they're always going to be equal, e- opposite that point. So at point three, at one position, there's two objects there. Wouldn't you love to be a planet right there at that time, right? You've got a sun there and you've got a sun there. It's sun, not sunny all day long, no night. Of course, you'd have other situations where it wasn't. You know, you'd always have them opposite, no matter where you were. If you could be a planet right there, would that be stable? Yeah, but not very stable. Technically, you could put a planet there and it would be stable, theoretically. But if you deviate it any little bit from that position, then you're going to put it a little bit closer to one of those stars and its gravity would start to take over and pull you. So technically, if you had the technology, you could put some kind of stable object there, but you'd need some sort of forces to keep it from balancing, keep it balanced. Otherwise, if it moves even a little tiny bit, 
something happens to it, it would just go into an unstable orbit and crash into one of those stars. Now if you make it, the whole idea here is if you make that object bigger, this is what I was just saying before, here's a mass of one, one star unit. Now we've got another star that's twice as big. It orbits in a much smaller orbit, still around the common focus, still around that central center of mass point. And if you go to the extreme, well here's a planet orbiting around the sun. There's the sun orbiting around its center of mass. They're both orbiting around again that same point. Within, in this case it's just within the sun. So you don't see the sun moving, although technically you can actually measure those motions of the sun as well. You could measure that the sun is moving a little bit um, in the distance, off of the distance by, by measurements of the light coming from it. All right, where were we? All right, almost done with chapter one. Let's finish that up and we'll get a quick introduction to chapter two that we'll start on next week. Um, chapter one, really the first models we talked about last time were geocentric. They explained retrograde motion but had to use those epicycles so you made more very complex models to do it. So they weren't easily able to explain how retrograde motion works. Heliocentric model did. Heliocentric sun at the center just explained it by the earth is moving faster and passes by the outer planet makes it look like it's going backwards. So nothing really moves backwards as it did in, a, in the geocentric model. It just was a way to explain it. I went through all of Galileo's observations already so I'm not going to go through those in detail again. Each of them supported the heliocentric model in some way though. They may have helped by saying you know, the sun's not perfect, the moon's not perfect, that there are imperfections out there in the universe. They may have helped by showing us that objects orbited around something else or that an object had to orbit the sun in order to exhibit the properties that it showed. And then last time we did do Kepler's laws, Kepler's three laws of planetary motion. Again, those all came from observations that previous astronomers had made, detailed observations, and he put them all together. He put all of those observations together and found out how the planets really worked. That orbits are elliptical, that the planets move faster when they're closer to the sun and slower when they're further away, and that there's a relationship between the distance between a planet and the sun and its uh, orbital period, how long it takes to go around once. Newton was able to go through and calculate all of Kepler's, uh, what Kepler found, he was actually able to show that not only does it work in the solar system, but with a little bit of modification it can actually be used to explain how the objects orbit around each other anywhere in the universe. So not just confined to the solar system, but worked any, worked any place in the universe. So it expands on Kepler's laws on each of those and they work whether we're talking about two star, two pla a planet orbiting a star, a moon orbiting a planet, a star orbiting around the galaxy, stars orbiting around each other, galaxies orbiting around each other, all can be explained by the same set of uh, laws. And then the last thing that we went over today, gravitational force between two objects, uh, given right here again, a gravitational constant, the product of the two masses, and inversely is the square of the distance. So you increase the masses, you increase the force. You increase the distance, you decrease the amount of force between the two objects. Right. Question, question, yes sir? With the yeah. It is neg it is, and you'll see it in some places I put it in, sometimes I don't write it in. Negative just means that it's a force that's attracting. So the negative is really just telling you the direction. And negative signs in phys are really telling you the direction that things are operating. So it means that it's a force that's pulling things together, not a force that's pushing things apart. If it were technically, if it were positive, then that force would be accelerating things away from each other. So in technicality, yeah, it should have the negative sign there. I'm not that picky on it for this course. I mean, if you wrote it down with, without the negative sign, I'm not going to tell you that it's, that it's wrong. That just means that it's a force of attraction. If you ever look at electricity and magnetism, there's a very similar equation for the force between two positively charged particles or negatively charged particles. Well then, you'll get sometimes you'll get two positive charges or two negative charges and you get a positive sign and you get repulsion or you'll get a positive and a negative and get attraction. With gravity, you never have a negative mass. So you always get a force that is attractive, that is pulling things together. But yes, thank you. The, technically, the negative sign should be there. 
but it's really just what it's telling you is that the gravity is always pulling things together. Anything else? Well, let me go ahead and we'll start on chapter, get an introduction on chapter two here. And that way we can finish that up on Wednesday and Friday of next week. So chapter, oops, I, all right. Think, think, think. Okay, chapter two. While it's thinking, chapter two is light and matter. So we're going to talk about how sort of light works and how light interacts with matter. And we see here a nebula, much like we looked. Okay. Much as we looked at a little bit earlier, we saw in the picture of the day, we saw some of the nebula. Here's a different nebula that we're looking at here. So red glow due to hydrogen gas being excited by some of these hot stars that are deep down within that nebula. Okay. Give me just a second here. Let's see. If it will let me do this. Thinking, thinking, thinking. Maybe it just doesn't want me to start chapter two. I see. Yeah, it's doing something. <laughs> My slideshow. Will that one open or not? All I wanted to do was go through over the first two slides. All right. Well, let's see. We just want to close everything. Chapter 1, huh? Is that the one that was locked up? There's chapter 2. Okay. All right. A little bit of a delay there. So really just the units of chapter 2 here. We're going to talk about looking at, and what I want to start on is just give you a little bit of information on the waves is what I was going to look at today. So looking at the different waves. Um, the information that we get in astronomy is only what we can see, is only the light that comes from the sky. Now light does not mean just visible light. When you talk, when I say light, you think, what are we seeing with our eyes? Light in astronomy can mean a whole range of different types of radiation and that are part of what we call the electromagnetic spectrum. Visible light is just a tiny portion of that. Radio waves are another. Radio waves are just like light waves. They're just real long wavelengths. Instead of having wavelengths that we measure in nanometers, right, like we did in the lab, when we did the lab there, you measure them, you can measure them in centimeters, meters. You can measure them in really long wavelengths. X-rays are another form of electromagnetic radiation. Right? They're just the same as light. They travel at the speed of light. Everything is ex all the properties are exactly the same, except they're incredibly short. Much, much shorter than those few nanometers that we had for visible light. So we'll look at the entire, we'll look at first of all what waves are and what the electromagnetic spectrum is. And then we'll talk about different types of ra radiation how we learn about things like the nebulae. So how can we study them? We have, the only thing we have to use is the light that we see from them. Can't go get samples of them. We can't go, you know, how do we know what they're made up of? I told you 90% of everything is, hy is hydrogen. Well, how do I know? We can actually observe, we can actually make observations using a science called spectroscopy where we split light up into the colors of the rainbow. When we look at some of those nebulae that we were looking at earlier today, we look at that red nebula, we see different spectral lines. We don't get a rainbow like we get if we put a prism on the sun. You'd get all the colors, right? You'd get red, orange, yellow, blue, green, blue, and violet. You'd see the whole rainbow. When we look at that nebula and we split its light up with the prism, we only get very specific lines. We get a red line and we get a couple blue and violet lines. That's what we get for hydrogen. That pattern of lines is very specific to each element and tells us, in effect, we can look at those lines from any object we can detect and we can determine what elements exist there. With a little more detail and things we understand, we can tell how much of them are there. So we can use that information just using the light. I don't need to go get a scoop of that 
material in the nebula, I can actually just use the light to be able to determine that. The last thing we'll talk about this t- in this chapter is the Doppler effect, which is a way of figuring out how fast things are moving in space. It's hard to do with most things. If we're just looking at a distant star, it's hard to tell how it's moving. Right? I mean, we can sit there and watch it, and if we watch it for tens and hundreds of years, we can see it slowly, slowly tracking across the sky. Remember we had the fixed stars? Well, they're not really so fixed. They do move, but it takes them a long, long time, and they will move relative to each other. But over many hundreds and thousands of years, they will change their positions. We can also measure some of that motion by using the Doppler effect, using a shift of these spectral lines. The more the shift from where they should be, if we measure them here on Earth, the faster that object is moving. So we can tell whether things are moving towards us or away from us just by measuring its spectral lines. All right, I think I just wanted to do, really to put up the first one, I kind of talked about this already, and then we'll come back and pick up on the rest of this on um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, get there eventually. On Wednesday, we'll come back and pick up on, on this material. And we'll finish, two, we'll finish chapter 2 on Wednesday and Friday. But electromagnetic radiation is just a definition here of transmitting energy through space without any physical, there's no physical material needed. So you can transport this energy through space without anything else. You don't need uh, a medium to transport it through like you do sound, right? We get rid of all the air in this room and we can somehow magically hold our breaths that long and not be not immediately be asphyxiated, right? And I keep talking, my mouth will keep moving. I can move my mouth, but the sound will not get to you. If the atmosphere were not here, there's no way for that sound to get to you. Light does not need that. We could turn we could evacuate the atmosphere from this room and we're all wearing our little spacesuits, right? We can still see each other just fine. The light will still travel. Light does not require anything to travel. But sound does. Sound is quite different. So you could have an explosion in the sun, have a great explosion. It'll make a sound there where there's material to transport that sound. It'll never make it to the earth. The sound cannot travel through that vacuum. One of the things you see wrong in a lot of science fiction movies, right? Out there you watch a spaceship blow up and there's a big explosion sound. Well, there'd be nothing. You wouldn't hear anything if you're out in space watching that. If you could be listening to it out in space, you'd never hear anything because there is no way to transmit that sound. Does that not mean material would come to it? No, still be dangerous, right? You got material flying all over the place, but the sound would actually never get to you. The light of the explosion would, the sound would actually not. Why it's called electromagnetic radiation is that it is carried by a combination of electric and magnetic fields. So electromagnetic radiation, it's electric fields, and electric field varies and creates a magnetic field, and that magnetic field changes, gets stronger and weaker, and it creates an electric field, and it's a self-propagating wave. It'll just keep going. So that's how we can see it's that electromagnetic radiation. Light is one example. There's a picture of a galaxy in visible light, but radio waves are another. Infrared radiation, ultraviolet radiation, X-rays and gamma rays are some of the others that we'll be talking about uh, on Wednesday. So even with the glitch there, I got at least the first couple of slides. I just wanted to get you through a quick introduction that saves me kind of introducing it on Wednesday and we can jump kind of right into the material talking about waves. Questions, questions? Give you a break here for uh, 10 minutes or so and then I'll get the